The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Eco Right Speaks the center-right climate podcast brought to you by the team at republicen.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and today I'm happy to welcome two special guests. First, Joshua Siegel from the Washington Examiner joins me in conversation. Josh is on the Energy Beat, and he is often the source for the stories included in our weekly Climate Week in Review email that goes out to republicen.org members and allies. I encourage you to follow Josh if you're on Twitter at Siegel Scribe and to sign up for Washington Examiner's daily energy alerts. They're really informative and give a different perspective than you might find from other Beltway news. Later in the episode, I'm going to share my conversation with Florida State Representative Holly Rashine, a Republican who has represented Florida's 120th district, which includes Monroe County and Southern Miami-Dade County since 2012. We're going to talk about cats. We're going to talk about climate change. It's really probably going to be the first in many conversations with Holly, who feels like a sister I've never met. And I just have to note that, yes, listeners, we have had more guests hail from the state of Florida than from anywhere else in the U.S. And I think that just goes to underscore how critical the Sunshine State is in efforts to act on climate change. It also goes to show how strongly the eco-right represents there. But first, my conversation with Josh Siegel. I would like to welcome our listeners back. We are here, as promised, with Josh Siegel from the Washington Examiner. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. So as I explained to our listeners, you are the top energy reporter for the Washington Examiner, um, a conservative-leaning media outlet that we rely on so heavily to find that important eco-right news that we share with our community every week. So I thank you for your hard work. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I think we have an important audience to reach uh, as we talk about climate change. Definitely. Uh, you know, I think I think people who, who read us might not be as, um, you know, acclimated to what's written in, in kind of the mainstream or mainstream in air quotes uh, press. So so yeah, I think we, we have, we're valuable in that way. Well, Josh and I are talking on a Friday. I just wanted to say I hope there's no 4 p.m. Friday news dump that you have to deal with when we get done with our recording. Oh, God, yeah. You, you, know, you never know. Uh, today it feels like things are, are not slowing down uh, during the pandemic. We're in convention week is just wrapped up. So it's, it's been busy. And then we have the Republicans next week. To that point, I was wondering, well, how long have you been with the Examiner? Yeah, it's it's been about three years now. Uh, you know, I came to D.C. and uh, maybe three years before that, I, I was went to school in Florida at GCU. Uh, I was actually always wanted to be a sports journalist, so I kind of took a took a detour late in college and just kind of decided I don't know how exciting it would be to kind of do day in day out covering a, a team and 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 how. Uh, you know, just how important I was like, okay, you know, I feel like politics and policy are, are more impactful on people's lives and just kind of took a late, late uh, interest and, 
yeah, you know, did some local reporting in, in Florida and then came to D.C., figured it's kind of easier in today's uh, journalism landscape to kind of jump markets. Traditionally, you kind of have to go small, you know, small, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. But, um, you know, figured you can make that leap now and, and your ability to kind of brand yourself with, with social media and kind of distinguish yourself that way. And I uh, came to cover cover politics. I did it first for a uh, politics and policy for a uh, another conservative leaning website called the Daily Signal. That was just kind of where my opportunity came about um, and then moved to the Examiner, which I thought had a had a larger audience and actually had just started covering energy about a year into that. So it was totally new to me. Um, and I, I think that has had some advantages and that, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to write about these very complicated issues. It's kind of easy to write about it in a maybe insidery uh, fashion. And I, I try to kind of bring, okay, what's the story? What's the conflict? And, uh, and, and you know, I've also been able to, to build, you know, some good trust on the, on the Republican side, um, just because of, you know, where I, where I worked before in my experience, kind of covering that, that type of audience. Well, that's funny because I was going to ask if energy and the environment was something that you had sought to do. No, I, I, fell, I totally fell into it, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I see myself sticking with this. I just think it's so uh, it's important just kind of where just how our energy, um, you know, is transitioning, how the, the process that that's going to occur, how businesses are involved, the, pu- the public grassroots um, organ- organizing the politics. Um, there's just kind of so much involved. It's, it's clearly an issue that's uh, as a future lens to it. Um, it's, you know, not going anywhere and there's a lot of uh, conflict involved. So it's, as a journalist, there's definitely, um, you know, a lot of places you could shed light and, and there's a lot of excitement. Yeah. You got a little of everything with um, on that beat for sure. And I was thinking about, so if you've been covering this for the last three years, what a three years to pick, because you've probably seen a real shift in how GOP lawmakers, specifically where your focus is, have have changed where they are and how they approach energy and climate change. Yeah, and I think maybe covering, you know, not not as uh, my history, not going back so far, I think I am maybe to be I'm able to be a little less jaded. I, I think some in the media are maybe a little bit um, more not, not not skeptical is maybe not the right word, but just maybe don't give any much credence to kind of what's happening here with Republicans or um, maybe say that it's it's insignificant given kind of the state the scale of the problem and and how we do you know need to need to act here pretty quickly according to the scientists and um, I don't know I found that um, you know just from from my experience it, it seems like the the you know the rhetoric can right now it's you know a lot of rhetoric with Republicans but. Um, I think that signaling is important. They're responding to what, you know, they're very upfront about young people, um, you know, which is very important. They're losing uh, the Republican Party, you know, has lost support of young people. This is an issue they they care about. So they're responding to that. And I, I think the, the rhetorical shift does, does matter uh, and could presage, you know, who knows what it what it leads to. I mean, right now we obviously see their level of policy support. It's you know, pretty, pretty narrow. It's very much around research and development investments and, you know, tax credits, um, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I know there's, there's others who think you can be opening up uh, more opportunity, you know, just seeing where, where the left's going is they're you know, proposing more aggressive action and kind of what becomes that, that middle, middle space. So I, yeah, I think it's, it's significant what's happening with Republicans. For well, sure. I mean, you're not going to go from, I don't think it's happening to let me embrace the most aggressive bill ever. So those steps are important. And 
I agree with you. The rhetoric is important too, because you have to get comfortable with how to talk about an issue, I think, so that you can learn more about it. And it does signal. It signals for other people who maybe haven't been as vocal about an issue to also think, hey, I can I can take a step out on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the fact that you're seeing it, you know, pretty much across the spectrum. I mean, you know, Garrett Graves is a is an example people talk about a lot because he leads the House uh, Climate Crisis Committee for Republicans, Louisiana, huge huge oil and gas state, but also a state that is experiencing sea level rise is really on the front lines mm-hmm. of this. Uh, you know, you you have someone like uh, you know Francis Rooney, who I know everyone loves, who who is uh, retiring, retiring and he's on the more yeah. a- aggressive side and. And, uh, you know, been out there on a, on a carbon tax. Um, but I, I mean, I think and even in the Senate, I mean, guys like Lindsey Graham, uh, Mitt Romney, who's now kind of the anti-Trump, you know, the, the, the most kind of centrist Republican that we see. But Lindsey Graham's a kind of, a, you know, a Trump ally. And he's, you know, been someone more vocal on, on the need to, to, you know, take this serious. So uh, and I and I think that suggests that there are a lot of these, uh, you know, the clean energy jobs are happening in, in red states. It's something they can't ignore. And, uh, you know, and they're, as I said earlier, they're aware of the electoral uh, consequences of just kind of having their head in the sand. What when you are pursuing a story, what does that look like? Do you you know, you're following that you're looking at this congressional schedule so you know when there might be a hearing or an opportunity to for a member to speak. But you know, are you, do you call these members on their cell phones and talk to them directly? Are you dealing with press secretaries? Like how, mm-hmm. when you're pursuing a story, how does that look, that process? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's important to kind of try to, I mean, we obviously, so we have our daily on energy newsletter that we put Which out. Which I love. It's the first thing I read every morning. <laughs> <laughs> good to hear, good to hear. Um, so we put that out every, uh, every weekday around noon, um, Eastern. And, uh, so that's more, you know, I'm going to pay attention to the day to day. You'll, you'll watch the hearings. You'll, you know, make sure you're seeing everything in your inbox. And, but a lot of that is, um, you know, Abby Smith and I, my colleague is our original reporting as well. And, and, um, but more, but just more generally for stories, I do think it's important to kind of, because we're, we're smaller, we don't have the, we're not a Politico, we're not covering, you know, every, um, you know, legislative kind of, um, you know, uh, milestone or something. We're, we're, I want to, I want to find a unique story, a, a bigger, you know, some, something that others might be missing. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm making a lot of, a lot of calls. Um, but I think it's important as a journalist not to, well, making a lot of more calls now that we're working from home. I mean, <laughs> obviously sure. I'd be in, in the Capitol some, um, if that wasn't the case, but, um, yeah, you know, I think it's important not to just kind of talk with sources when you need something, but just to, kind of check in. And, and I mean, yeah, I mean, lawmakers, um, that's a, a little bit trickier. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, I, you know, have the ability to just kind of call every, every uh, lawmaker I want and just kind of shoot the breeze. But, um, you know, just more generally, it is it is important to just kind of stay stay in touch with people and, and, and have, um, you know, be they might flag something interesting, and then you kind of check it out. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm always just kind of trying to be proactive and less reactive, which it's very, it's very easy um, to be reactive and kind of you know, with social media and being on Twitter all day and just kind of seeing what, what everyone, what everyone else is doing. And it's a very competitive space. So, um, yeah, and I've kind of found that the Republican covering the Republicans very closely is just kind of a niche that I thought wasn't, um, wasn't getting a ton of attention. So I've just, I thought that that made sense for me to, to try to kind of develop trust on that side. And, and Democrat, I mean, Democrats as well, I think they know that I that I have a good pulse of what's happening with Republicans. And they, of course, want to 
respond and re- provide their um, you know counter or support for whatever the Republicans are are saying as well. So um, so that's kind of how I look at it. You just you just want to find unique places where you can actually kind of you know make a difference. To what you said about finding those unique stories and not just reporting what everyone else is reporting. After a while, they can feel kind of repetitive, right? They're all reporting on the same this or that. And that is where I appreciate your um, daily energy report because it has something unique. And especially with the um, divisiveness today and the partisanship, I think the more that people are seeing that it isn't all you know, left, right, that there are kind of mushy areas and there are areas where people agree. And I look at, you know, the um, the Climate Solutions Caucuses and somebody like a Coons and a Braun. I mean, those two guys probably agree on, you know, let's be generous and say 70, 80 percent. Or they probably agree on like 95 percent of what the problems are in the world and how to fix them or what the problems are in the U.S. And and it's that their approaches might be different, but then they found this ability to come together on climate change. Yeah, no, I, uh, as you said, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, clear clear agreement now on, on the science, which is which is good. Um, it's, a, it's a starting place, but um, yeah, I mean, I think the big challenge ahead is kind of what we see. Um, you know, depending in, I think everyone thinks we're kind of in a holding pattern at the moment as far as policy. We're having an election upcoming, yeah. but um, I think a lot of people I talk to are kind of watching what. Um, first of all, if, if Trump were to win re-election, what direction? What would that mean for the Republicans? I mean, I think Trump is clearly not in the same place as where Republicans in Congress are. He he still doesn't like to talk about climate change as a problem. Um, he likes to talk about environmental issues. He calls himself an environmentalist, but seems to kind of um, not distinguish between like you know having clean air and clean water versus like com- combating you know reducing emissions. Um, so. I've kind of wondered in my mind, you know, this is that game we play in Washington, right? We're like, oh, what different outcomes could be of the election? And and if there was a situation where the House, the Democrats held the House, the Democrats take back the Senate and Trump wins re-election, I've wondered whether that could be an interesting combination to get some sort of, you know, again, probably not the biggest, most comprehensive climate bill, but could something move with that kind of combination? Yeah, no, we're, we're totally uh, gaming it out too. And, um, you know, as where I was kind of going is it also if the Dem, I mean, if the Democrats do kind of have a clean sweep, I mean, does that, do Republicans position themselves kind of like they did in the Obama administration as we're just going to kind of oppose yeah. everything? Or do they now say, you know, maybe maybe their the Democrats' message on some of these issues, including climate, you know, did register with a broad segment of of people, and we need to, you know, take it serious and and maybe bring them, reel them in a little bit from kind of the uh, green you know Green New Deal style kind of mandates and um, you know regulations that we know Republicans aren't as uh, apt to support um, to something. You know, carbon pricing is always looked at by the center right. I, I still. Hard to see uh, much evidence that Republicans will get there, and then Democrats, you know, at the same time seem to be kind of preferring more the uh, you know clean electricity standard uh, approach. So it, it'll be interesting to see kind of what represent if Republicans do decide to kind of be serious, if Democrats do take full control, like where to where the Republicans go, like what is their policy um, beyond what they're doing now? Because I, I think you know people are going to find that it's probably not sufficient. Right. And I think especially um, with COVID, 
one thing that it feels is like people are seeing more the urgency to be prepared on climate change and we've already wasted some time so let's let's do it and yeah i mean at republicen.org we love the idea of a carbon tax um we know it's a big rock up a really steep hill but so when you write an original article like beyond your your daily energy report do you ever read the comments that people post uh you know i mean i'd say i do read everything that people send me just because i want to be responsive and aware of kind of how my content is being into you know interpreted but uh, yeah i mean of course you you get uh I mean, I think it's always good as a journalist, the more if you're getting kind of, you know, some critiques or something from both sides, you know, it's always like, OK, you must be doing something right. You're you're kind of being being fair. Uh, you know, you're not kind of picking sides. Um, but but, yeah, you, you know, you also don't want to get cut up and um, kind of like name calling or like personal. Yeah. I mean, some, some yeah, you got to have thick skin as a as a journalist. And I've been kind of lucky. I, I haven't anything too crazy that I can think of. But yeah, I mean, there are, you're, there are always kind of your regulars who, who are, you know, kind of commenting on, on, on everything that you write. And um, yeah, I think it's important to kind of maintain communication and, and stay level headed while you're doing that. Just, you know, you want to, you want to keep their, keep your readership and, uh, and be respectful. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's tricky with social media for sure. Um, but I haven't had anything kind of, that's good. You know, too crazy. I'm glad to hear that. Um, well, thank you for all the great reporting you do and for, again, being, you know, I, I aggregate this news every week and it's been slow. I will say since COVID, it's been harder to find um, the the good news. You know, I try to keep it positive and, and keep things focused on, um, you know, active, positive news and you're my number one source. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate your efforts and I look forward to reading more and um, furthering these conversations. Maybe next time we can have you and Bob on together. Yeah, no, for sure. And I give, I give my regards to Bob. I, I, you know, thought he's always a good, good resource for this. RepublicEN.org is the leading voice for climate action, and we want to hear from you. Now, let's continue with this week's episode. I'm super psyched to bring you Florida State Rep Holly Rashine, a Republican who has represented Florida's 120th district, which includes Monroe County and Southern Miami-Dade County since 2012. Holly and I are going to talk about stray cats. We're going to talk about coral reefs. We've got it all. So please stay tuned for my conversation with Holly Rashine. Welcome back, listeners, to our segment with our Florida State Rep, Holly Rashine, who has joined us today. Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be with you. Well, I have to admit that I did a little cyber stalking about you. And before we talk about climate change, I just can't help bring this little tidbit up. I saw that you championed a stray cat bill. And as a crazy cat lady myself who feeds the strays in the neighborhood, I just wanted to ask a little bit about this effort of yours. Yes. Yeah, so uh, as you know, I represent the Florida Keys and we have a, a rather large uh, feline stray feline population and we have a lot of cat lovers as well down here and so we were trying to work on some language having to do with the trap neuter release program 
And uh, that was the only animal bill and the first and last animal bill that I ever filed because, man, I learned my lesson. Anytime you file an animal bill, it brings people out of the woodwork. I had the cat people. I had the dog people. I had Audubon, the bird people opposing the bill. (laughs) Remember, cats, you know, eat birds. It was a wild time. Uh, I actually didn't even think the bill would receive a hearing. It did receive one committee hearing, and it was quite quite an interesting hearing. Anyway, I had to get that out of the way. We will definitely shift to climate change. Um, You recently co-authored an op-ed with a Democratic colleague in January, and I will link that piece in our show notes. Um, In this op-ed, you talk about the Florida Climate and Resiliency Research Program, which would be created by your bill. And I was hoping you could just take a second to describe that to our listeners. Sure. So uh, resiliency is sort of the new kid on the block, right? It's, uh, it's, it's really fun to talk about. Um, people aren't quite sure what it entails. And, you know, we're right here in Florida, we're sort of ground zero. And especially in South Florida and the district that I represent, which is the Florida Keys in Southern Miami-Dade County, where we have uh, some agriculture land, but then we have a, a lot of Everglades. And then, of course, all of the island chain of the Florida Keys. And so, what again, you know, resiliency is an incredible topic. Um, the policy work that is going on around it is really cool to watch. But Florida, we, you know, we didn't necessarily have a plan. And, uh, you know, resiliency takes into so, you know, takes into so many um, issues, right? So transportation, water quality, flooding, you know, sea level rise, uh, what do, what are the health impacts, you know, of, of climate change, uh, the fisheries? I mean, I could go on and on. And again, Florida being such a diverse and unique state, I, you know, I, I and, and a number of my colleagues and our, our governor as well has been a huge proponent of, uh, of the environment and resiliency and putting together a plan for Florida. What does that look like? Um, you know, what works in the panhandle in North Florida is, is maybe uh, a little different than in Central Florida, and certainly, you know, South Florida skews the scales for for a lot of different issues. Well, Governor DeSantis also appointed the first chief resilience officer when he first took office, which I thought was something other states should jump on and do as well, because it is going to look different for every state. It sure is. And you see a number of local governments, whether they're, you know, municipalities or counties, uh, certainly across our state, our state, and I'm sure across the nation, pointing, appointing their own resiliency officers. And I think that's an amazing move on behalf of these local governments, because, you know, if, if they have a plan in place and then they're, you know, the state has, you know, sort of the umbrella plan in place, I think everybody is going to, um, you know, really be able to work together. But, you know, um, Julia Neshwat, Dr. Neshwat was an incredible lady. She has unfortunately since moved on I know, um, that's so to sad. work with the administration. Yeah. But, you know, I, I hope that that the governor will will soon be, you know, reappointing somebody or appointing someone new, um, you know, to that office again. So, you know, can I, I nominate I you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I would love that job. I think it would be a dream job. That's for sure, uh, especially since I'm terming out. So I have I have some time. But, um, you know, in, in, in this time of a pandemic, we certainly don't want to let these important conversations go by the wayside because climate change and, uh, you know, resiliency, that's while it might be the new kid on the block, it's not going away. This is a conversation 
that we're having now. This is a conversation that our children will continue, their children and their children and their children, because it is only going to be uh, you know, ever changing. And I'm, um, I'm just thrilled that all these, you know, communities are coming together and having this conversation. Well, it's like you said in your op-ed, Floridians are already paying for climate change. And when you just listed all of the different ways that it impacts or the, the things that it touches from public health, transportation, it's not just an environmental issue. And real we, estate, real estate, real estate. Um, yes. We, yes, yes. We have, you know, million dollar homes down here in the Keys. And don't get me wrong. My, I don't live in a million dollar home. A lot of people <laughs> don't. But we but we have some of them down here on the ocean or on the bay. And they're, you know, during a king tide, you know, one of those extreme tides or during a full moon or right now we have tropical storm Laura passing us and this the the day high tide is not going to be an issue but the night tide tonight is almost going to be like a a king tide and so we're seeing it play out right now even today and you know these property values are going to be affected what are we going to do are we going to raise the road i mean the conversation is never going to end and i think again going back to the op-ed or the legislation you know having that that plan and however flexible we need to make it um is is critical um i once upon a time worked on the serp the comprehensive everglades Uh restoration plan i was working in the senate on that bill when it was um, passed in, nine, in 2000. We started on in 1999, mm-hmm. 1998. And mm-hmm. I remember we would go to the Keys and, you know, for various stakeholder meetings and stuff. And that one road coming off the Keys to mainland Florida, so to speak, I remember always thinking, seeing the little signs like evacuation route and thinking, God, I would never mm-hmm. want to be on this road in an evacuation situation. Oh, I've been on it a few times during an evacuation situation, and um, the road has since uh, been redone. Uh, we've got, you know, it's one lane in, one lane out, but there are certain, you know, shoulders we can open up. We can close down the southbound lane and then just, you know, make, actually we can make mo- both lanes uh, northbound. But these are the creative solutions that communities have tackled, you know, in response to these sort of these uh, challenges, if you will. And, you know, we've got a county road that that will take you out um, on the north side of the islands. But yeah. And what and kudos to you. What an incredible time to be working on environmental policy with the uh, with CERP coming together. I mean, wow. I uh, hats off to you. It was a lot of fun. It was really kind of the first big thing that I worked on. And it's hard to believe that it was 20 years ago. We weren't really talking a lot about climate change at that point. But I do remember with the Senate staff I was with, the congressional staff, we were on um, a NOAA, I think a marine sanctuary boat or something. And we, mm-hmm. we were doing a little field investigation yeah, of the coral. Yeah. Yes, we were in mm-hmm. the coral reefs. Um, very important field work for um, staff to do. And I remember Snorkeling. that our, <laughs> our captain said that he and his wife were avid scuba divers and that they had been chronicling the changes in water temperature since the 70s. And it was really the first time that someone had talked about climate change to me in that way. And, you know, this was just, an, it wasn't anything that was administration position or that he was, you know, point he was trying to make, it was more personal, right? This was our passion. Mm-hmm. We love this. We're seeing changes on the coral reefs and that always stuck with me. And so then years later, when I kind of made the transition to working more on climate change, 
and just never forgot that story. And it's time, I think, for me to go back to the Keys and take a little, do a little before and after <laughs> to see how I things agree. look. I <laughs> agree. I agree. And, and, and unfortunately, what you're going to find, Chelsea, is that it's going it's going to be uh, way worse than when you experienced it back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, because of we've we've had a, a coral bleaching, you know, obviously the the acid, um, you know, the acidization of the ocean OA, you know, uh, ocean acidification, which is another conversation for another day. Um, but our coral reef right now, which is the third largest reef tract in the world, is um, being attacked by a terrible disease right now. It started up in the northern part or the, the Treasure Coast there in Martin County in, in Florida. And now, unfortunately, it's all the way down almost to the Tortugas, which is the very end of the reef. And we've got a, a lot of scientists, a lot of nonprofits, um, just uh, all eyes, you know, all hands on deck are, are, are trying to put our reef back together. But um, would love to have you come see it. It's still amazing. And um, but that yeah, we could spend a, a whole nother show talking about the reef. I'm that's sure, for sure we could. Well, maybe we'll have to take like a field uh, podcast <laughs> visit once we're all yes. able to travel again safely. Um, Agreed. I wanted to go back to something you said, too, when we were talking about real estate and just other impacts of climate change or other ways people are paying for climate change. I find the insurance issue to be really fascinating yeah. and something uh -huh. that not a lot of people are thinking about. Yes. So I think it's incredibly important. And, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative, so we always kind of want to look at the economic impacts of whatever issue we're, we're looking at. And, you know, when it comes to insurance, we, especially down in South Florida, we typically will pay higher rates, whether it's property insurance, whether it's windstorm insurance, whether it's flood insurance, we're, you know, again, <laughs> ground zero when it comes to, uh, to, to that topic. But, um, you know, we're seeing the, the rewriting of the flood maps where FEMA is not necessarily going to be looking at your zone, so to speak. Are you in the X zone or are you in, you know, this zone? Um, but they are going to be looking at the, uh, oh, what is the right word, uh, sort of the, the impact. What is your risk? Mm -hmm. They're going to look at your property compared to where your placed and you know on the island and and then that will into you know in turn become whatever rate that you're going to pay and i have a feeling it's going to be higher for some folks it may be lower and that's awesome but if you're a coastal property it's it's probably going to go up um and i'm worried that you're going to see a lot of folks who maybe don't have a mortgage which obviously you know flood insurance is a good idea but um if you don't have a mortgage you can self-insure and i just you know, I really, really caution folks to be careful with that. You know, should we have a, a big natural disaster? You know, we're no strangers to that. Again, we've got Tropical Storm Laura passing by us in a couple hours. Um, again, the the economic um, impact can be can be detrimental. Yeah, and then I think too about could you envision a situation where where the insurers don't want the underwriters don't want to insure homes because the risk is too high. Yes, and abs absolutely, without a doubt. Um, you know, obviously, there's a thing out there. You know, the reinsurance market. At at the end of the day, what if what if that market's not going to be available? What if they're not going to be able to prop up the insurance industry? Now, don't want to be all doom and gloom on that topic because you know uh, 
insurance is a is a necessary component of home ownership or property ownership but there's also things that property owners can do and that we we have done in Florida for a number of years and that's mitigation right so we uh, we have impact glass we have hurricane shutters we have fancy hurricane shutters that you can use remotes with um, you see a lot of people picking up their homes there's some resources available out there especially um, in terms of, of of mitigation funds for folks to literally pick their houses up so they're not ground level so wow. i and, and insurance companies recognize this and in turn you know uh, lower rates for, for for property owners so there are there are solutions out there i don't want people to think that this is a hopeless hopeless cause But I think that what it really does show to our listeners is that climate change does go beyond being an environmental issue. It's really an everything issue. It is. And again, it it will eventually impact many, many parts of our lives uh, if it's not already. And I think, you know, going back to to the plan and and having sort of at least a guide, you know, having some guidelines. If you're going to build a house, why don't you know, why don't you use these pointers or if you're going to, um, you know, open up a business? Well, let's let's think about this. And, you know, this the, the time is now to be having these conversations. Right, for sure. And I know we talked um, before we hit record, we were talking about our kids. And and then you mentioned just how this generation, next generation, generations to come are all going to be dealing with these issues. And one thing that we think about at Republic EN is the environmental debt. So there's the budget deficit, which, you know, you mentioned being a fiscal conservative and, and that's troubling in and of itself, the, the budget deficit. And then when you add this environmental deficit, um, one of our spokespeople is currently shopping an op-ed where he talks about the potential costs of climate change, kind of that environmental deficit on top of the budget deficit. And what are we going to be able to afford to do or what is what is mm-hmm. that going to mean for an already, you know, we saw we've seen it with COVID, right? We had the deficit mm-hmm. before we had the COVID situation thrust upon us. And now here we are. And and you don't really have an option but to spend more um, right now. And so what's going to happen if we don't address climate change? Are we going to find ourselves kind of in a, a COVID emergency situation where we're having to spend more and borrow more? And, and nobody really likes to think about that. No. And it's something we do need to think about, though. And like with anything in life, you want to always be proactive, right? Um, you, being reactive tends to be more expensive than being proactive. And while you know, we may have to spend some money on the, you know, on the front end. I think it will, it, you know, if we, we've got some lasting plans, uh, I think, you know, in the back end, hopefully we'll be able to even save money, um, you know, say in the next generation or so. But I think there's also some, you know, behavioral changes that we, we can look at. You know, we've been doing the same thing for, you know, 100 years. Well, now we have technology. Now we have the Internet. Now we can do so many things that we couldn't do a hundred years ago and how, you know, that that's, again, that's a very broad topic and, and things like that. But, um, you know, addressing the fiscal component of that, I think is, is incredibly important. And our executive director, Bob Inglis brings that up frequently where he will talk about, you know, they didn't let 
the horse and buggy market keep us from creating automobiles or you didn't let the mm -hmm. typewriters association stop us from making computers there's always going to be some level of technological advancement and hopefully we can get to a point with climate change where we're either it's you know whether it's from the energy side and the types of energy we use and are able to harness or it's some other mechanism to pull co2 out of the atmosphere it's for people who have a way different skill set than I have to figure exactly. out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Leave it to the experts and the scientists. And, you know, the science is there. And I think everybody wants to be part of this, right? So we don't want to leave any any block of society out of this conversation or out of the solution. And I think that's what folks are really, you know, that's where at least me, you know, and, and my colleagues want to get Let's make this an all-encompassing um, solution, at least for the state of Florida. And and I, I really truly believe that you know the, that Florida is doing a, a fantastic job. Uh, there's a number of other states that are tackling this, and uh, if we put our heads together, you know, we we might we might get a really good good product. So you mentioned you're termed out. So when does the does the term end soon with election day coming up? Yes, yes, it does. So I've been in the House for eight years. And actually, I was a legislative aide for almost 10 years prior to that. So I've been with the state of Florida a long time. Wow. And it's been a it's been a wonderful run. Yes. And uh, I will be done in November. And then do you have some thoughts on what's next? I hope you're going to stay in the climate game. Yeah, I hope I hope to. Um, I, I, you know, feel very safe and um, happy in the in this sort of space. And I, uh, I've got a couple irons in the fire. I'd love to stay with the state of Florida for, um, you know, a couple more years at least. And we'll, we'll see. All right. I'm just going to make that pitch. Governor DeSantis, if you're listening, we want Holly as the chief resiliency officer for the state of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. Well, it was a real joy to talk to you. I do hope that someday we, I can make that Keys revisit happen. I just at this point, I need to dream about travel since we're not actually able to travel. And I wish you well for whatever comes next. And please be in touch with us. I You are our prototype eco-right person. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait for uh, the next opportunity. Wow. Two big interviews in one packed episode. I'm Price Atkinson and I'm your producer here of the Eco-Right Speaks podcast. Thanks to Josh and Holly for joining us in this episode. Two great interviews that Chelsea brought you. And thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading, subscribing, and listening every single week here to the EcoWrite Speaks podcast. You can download, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, uh, certainly Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, an array of places, Stitcher, to listen to the EcoWrite Speaks. All you got to do is hit subscribe and bam there you go so i want to say thank you to everybody once again but the big thing is i want to tell you is about an event we've got coming up thursday night september the 10th yes that's just a couple nights from now as this episode drops on tuesday september the 8th at 8 p.m eastern standard time we're hosting a climate chat with our executive director bob inglis uh, this is set up for conservatives do you have a friend do you remember our community and do you have a friend a family member somebody that is eco-hesitant, that has been uh, reluctant to come around on climate change. Obviously, the data is overwhelming, but for whatever reason, they have not gotten there yet. Well, this is a chance to join Bob and friends as we just have a small, intimate chat 
um, to ask questions and talk about uh, some of the issues about climate change. And hopefully uh, we will get your friend, family member uh, to come around a little bit. So I want to invite you to join us, sign up. You can sign up at Republican.org. Again, the climate chat with our executive director, Bob Inglis, Thursday night, September the 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's going to do it for us here on this episode, guys. Don't forget, we will be back again next week. A new episode of the Eco Right Speaks every single Tuesday, available right there on your smartphone, on your computer, on your iPad, wherever you listen. Until then, have a great week, and we'll see you down the road. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 